0: You are now listening to bigfoot and beyond featuring the og bad boys of bigfoot the dr heckle and mr jive of squatchology the chip and dale of bigfoot and i'm not talking about the cartoon please welcome your host the bigfoot celebrity couple biff Klobo, better known as cliff berrickman and james bobo Fay. good afternoon bobo how are you today good clip how's it gonna be man going okay just sitting inside my office at home looking looking at the snow come down outside it's pretty crazy out there man i don't like this stuff this it's all it's wet and cold which is pretty much the literal definition of snow
2: i don't mind that so much as i hate the sliding on ice and the crunching under your feet when you walk and walking it yeah
0: yeah in fact uh, we took a snow day at the at the museum today just cuz connor who is who loves snow by the way connor lives over in Gresham and uh, he tried to get out, I guess, today. And he said, Nope, screw this. This is even too much for me. You know, and he lived in Colorado most of his life. So he's kind of used to this snow stuff, man. I'm a Southern California boy. So I, I'm not used to this nastiness, but it's pretty to watch. Yeah. I, I, I love looking at it. Yeah. So Bobo, I, I've spoken, I've texted with you a little bit this week. I, you've been doing some follow-up stuff with that fisherman. who got chased out of the area. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been
2: finding so far? Yeah, I finally got up there with my buddy, Polly. We went up there. We couldn't get the witness to go with us. And I thought it was because he was so scared, but it was more that he's like, dude, I know they know who I am. I go there all the time. I fish there. I'm by myself. I walk in it dark. And he goes, I know they've been around me other times and I just didn't know what they were. But now that I know that they're there for sure, and I know they're real. He's like, I don't want to be seen out there with you guys going back and messing with their house or whatever nest. So he just uh, was, wasn't afraid of, like, being there, uh, getting attacked or something. He just didn't want to, like, do anything to ma- uh, piss them off. So we went out there, me and Paul went out there and looked. And you, you know how it is when you're going to in someone's directions. Like, just go down about a quarter mile and hang a right and look for a big stump. And this place is just, you know, up and down, thick, thick brambles and old redwoods down. And, bram- I mean, it's, it's tough going. It's hard to see anything. And we we definitely got to get him to go with the, back there with us. Cause we couldn't, we couldn't even come close to finding it.
0: No, no. Yeah. Um, nine times or more out of 10, somebody tells you directions on how to find something. You're not going to find it. It's ridiculous.
2: I know. It was just such a good one though. And like, I thought I was I, like, I knew better. Cause I was like, I was tell Paul, I'm like, whenever I do this, it's yeah, it's, it's over 90%. You can't find what the hell they're talking about. But, uh, this was re- a really bad spot. So, I mean, as far as that goes. But it sounded pretty interesting. Like he said it was a it was like a giant there was like big branches around it and there was like a huge wood rat nest with like a giant entrance that you could walk in. But it was like built up against a giant old redwood, I think it was a stump. And uh it was like a like a walk in cavern built and uh had some big trees pulled down and, and uh lots of lots of old animal hides scattered all around and Like lots of them. But he was running when it happened, and he was in a full panic. So he didn't take too much inventory.
0: When you say animal hide, do you mean
2: like the skin?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting because of uh, those reports that have Sasquatches peeling the skin off of animals. Like the one Nathaniel Bronis from um, um, Michigan. And when he saw that one, it had, had the fawn in its hand. It was peeling the skin off of that thing. Yeah, And of course, that's not the only one. That's interesting. That's some supporting evidence there, even though like he got scared out of the area. There are probably Sasquatches there. But when you find something, you want to try to connect it directly to a Bigfoot if possible, whether it's a footprint or maybe animal hides or something. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely places out there you, they could leave prints for sure. I mean, the problem is it's a huge elk area too. And there's a lot of bear. So you're seeing like there's just, it's trampled everywhere. I mean, there, there's a lot of elk. I mean, you're a fisherman. I, mean, I know that you're mostly,
0: you're commercial. You're not really a sporty guy, but maybe it's time to take up a fly rod and start the, the
2: delicate art of fly fishing out there, Bubs. I know. Uh, yeah. Cause he, he put me into those other guys, like those hardcore fly fishermen that go out, you know, look for little squirreled away places and they've, they you know, they've all got plenty of stories. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's how we found that spot at, 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 off a of big bear. Is that we, we got that spot because when I used to work at the fishing tackle store, Fisherman's Hardware, down in Long Beach, California, everybody would go fishing at this spot, um, pushed up in the San what San Bernardino Mountains, I think. Um, everybody go fishing up there, and if you walked far enough in, you had the deep, cool, still pools that all the fish were hanging in, and that's where my buddies and I are, would always talk about, or my buddies would go out there and go fly fishing. Um, I never actually made it out there, but that's how I knew about that spot. And it turns out that same spot held sasquatches when we were there.
2: Yeah, fishermen, I mean, they get out there and, and a lot of times they're walking out when it's still dark before light, just like hunters. Uh huh. Or coming back after dark. Right. So that's key. That's key for having to encounter remote places and getting just getting dark or just getting light is pretty, pretty common time for stuff to happen. Well, you know, um, I did uh, this past week, I did two
0: on site investigations that came from the museum. Oh, what'd you find? Well, one was a footprint find out in Canby. Now, if you know Canby, you're thinking, I don't know about that. There's like housing tracks and all this other stuff. Well, this uh, this this person found a, uh, a possible footprint in this in, in this county park out there. So, and I was thinking, I don't know, man, it's pretty far in. But at the same time, about six or seven years ago, I also took a sighting report from the golf course right at the base of the Malala River where it enters into the Willamette River. Um, and it's like, well, I, if, if they're there, this is a few miles to the south of there, right along the Malala River, there's a possibility. And I knew for sure that if I stayed at home, I would not find a footprint. So Connor and I went out there and followed this lady's directions, but we actually found it, which was kind of cool. And it turns out it was not a footprint. But it was just this mark on the ground on a trail where people had repeatedly put their boots over the years. But still, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to find them at home. I might as well go out of the woods and take a look. But then later in the week, Connor and um, another investigator we work with, uh, Keith, he, um, they went out to one of our new spots that we nicknamed uh, Easter Island. And um, so they went out to our new spot, Easter Island, where there's been a bunch of stuff happening over the last decade or so. And they stumbled across a trackway. Of course, they've been going out there probably two times a week, sometimes even three times a week, and just walking the roads. And this has been going on since um, you know since probably the last two or three months. But they stumbled across a trackway, and they cast one footprint, and then um, they didn't have any more plaster. So then they called me that night, and then we arranged to go out the next day, which was what two days ago, I think. And then sure enough, there was a trackway there. Um, I counted well; we documented eight footprints. Two of them showed toes. The rest of them were, were places where the ferns have been crushed down into the mud or rocks, you know that kind of stuff. When one place the foot slid to the side and built up this berm, you know, around it. But we uh, ended up casting two footprints out of that trackway. Um, And then while we were waiting for that other track to uh, dry, we're looking around and about 200 yards away, uh, I found another possible footprint about nine inches long, eight or nine inches long. Um, Now, of course, these still have all the debris on them. I'm not sure that last one is actually a print, but you know, my motto, if I'm not sure, I'm going to cast it and figure it out later. So um, when these things set up a little bit, uh, you know, dry out and get all the water out of them. We'll, we'll hose them down and take a look. And, you know, so uh, it's kind of an exciting week. So it's, it's, it's not often enough that I get to do tr- two track investigations in the same week. Yeah. And speaking
2: of tracks, I know the witness you got lined up for us this week, our guest, I've never met him, I don't think, in person, but I've heard his name for like at least 20 years. as a guy kind of near my area, like three or four hours away. And that he has a footprint collection that I need to see. I've heard it from several people. You got to see Ray Rosa's stuff. But I don't think I've ever seen it. No, no, I, I, uh,
0: I heard about this guy because I was trying to find more information about the Jim Hukin Trackway, but because uh, Jim Hukin, of course, was a wildlife biologist, lived in Oregon for a long time, and he published things. And like, for example, in the Cryptozoology uh, Journal for the International Society of Cryptozoology, every year he'd put out like field investigations in the Clack- Clackamas River or whatever, and he'd post his, he'd publish. Um, his Sasquatch research. So I've known about uh, Jim Hukin for decades, since the 90s, essentially. Um, and I knew he had a trackway, but I couldn't find them. I, I, I was so interested in tracking down the trackway, because I had one or two of the specimens from that trackway. But uh, it took me a long time. I had to talk to a lot of different people. But I finally tracked down the guy. And it turns out he's a, he's a well-known Bigfoot investigator from southern Oregon, lives in the Grants Pass area, approximately and um, he actually got a hold of the Jim Hukan collection, um, but that's not all. I, I contacted Ray, our guest today is Ray Rosa, so I contacted Ray when I was passing through and we managed to connect one day, and sure enough, he has the Jim Hukan trackway, but he also has a ton of other stuff that he's collected through the years, and he's been Bigfooting kind of more or less kind of low profile and off everybody's radar for a very long time, and that's just the kind of guests that we look for here on Bigfoot and Beyond, and so we invite them on, and we finally got Ray on. So everybody, uh, I don't know, clap or something, even if you're sitting in your car alone. Here's Ray Rosa. We're stoked to have him on. Ray, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Right on. So Ray, um, now, because you are rather low profile, um, not a lot of people know about you in general, and I know that's by design. So why don't you take us back at the beginning here and just tell us, give a brief account of how you became interested in this subject.
1: Well, I used to live in Southwest Washington state when I was, uh, in high school and growing up and
2: Where, whereabouts exactly
1: outside of Yelm, Washington, Yelm and Tacoma area. Okay. And I was out hunting with uh, a friend of mine and, uh, this was in the fall of, uh, 1988 and we were at this place that we used to call, we nicknamed it the knob. It was a great area to get deer. and. This one morning, uh, this guy, Jack, that I was hunting with, he decided he's going to go around this other ridge, this ridge line. He could face me, and I could face him. But it was probably a 1,000 yards away. So that morning, I had uh, just made some coffee and stuff, and I had laid my rifle against a tree, and I stood up. And as soon as I did, this... Large, hairy bipedal being who was running right down the hill, straight down the hillside through the jack timber. And jack, we call them jack firs. Jack firs are trees that are about you know twelve to fifteen foot tall that had been planted by like a uh, warehouser. And this thing just put its arms kind of like off to the to the sides a little bit and pushing those trees and was whooping, going straight down that hillside. And all I could see was the top of the shoulders and the back of the head as it popped in through there. It was really quick, and it went straight down the hill. And Jack, who was on the other ridge, he saw it come past me and went down the hill. Apparently, I startled this thing It didn't know I was there, and it just took off. And like I said, it was whooping. It was making this whoop sound. And I didn't know what I saw, and I was like, what on earth is that? And... It didn't take me long to get back to the truck. <laughs> I sat in the truck, and I, I'd look over it and I saw Jack when this happened, and he booked it. It took him a while to get to me, and when we got in the truck, we drove out of there, and he blew one of his tires, and we quickly changed it, and we blew the second tire because it was a, a heavy shale area there. And he drove it out on the rim till we got down on the, the main road. But I never went back up in there. Cause it really freaked me out. I didn't know what I, what it was that I saw, but then later on, I I realized that it was a Sasquatch. And from then on, you know, it's, you have, you go through the nightmares of it, but then you're also fascinated and it becomes where the fascination takes over. And from there it's just, you're hooked.
0: And how old were you when this happened? I was 18 years old. 18. Okay. And did you start like uh, soon thereafter looking into other reports or how how did your general uh, uh, like lifelong interest develop from that? I I know certainly that's a good starting point, but uh, like, did you start talking to more witnesses or or what did you do then?
1: Well, I started out in the library because there was no internet then. There was no cell phones. Um, You still had, uh, you know, your regular landline phones and so you're really limited on resources for trying to get with other people so i I would read john green's books and anything on sasquatch i could find um in search of with leonard Nimoy, of course anything bigfoot it just it gets to where it it starts to take over and it builds your fascination with it and then through that i started trying to research and and yeah, I learned about the, the triangle with Washington and Oregon and California. And then, you know, you realize about the Yetis and the Himalayas and the Almas and, and such. And then from there, you just start putting the little pieces together and start going up in the woods and looking for stuff. But when I was in Washington, I really never went out much there. It wasn't until I moved to Southern Oregon when I got out of the service that I decided to uh, pursue this even more in the area where I lived here.
0: What branch were you in? I was in the Navy. Okay. So you moved to Grants Pass after that?
1: Yes, I did. Uh, my, most of my family lives here in, in Grants Pass, and so uh, I moved to this area. It's a great area here. There's a, we're surrounded by mountains. Uh, there's lots of trees and food resources for all kinds of animals, elk, bear, deer, cougar, you name it. We've got it all here. And Sasquatch.
0: And Sasquatch, right. <laughs> so um the, now of course we're not we're not going to blow your spots or anything like that because you know we have them too we don't do that here but in general you mostly work in the grants pass area or do you travel outside there like down to medford or roseburg or something or is it just all local stuff as far as you're concerned
1: our area here we go into northern california and southern oregon area it's a region that we have here uh, we head out towards west towards the coast I've, I've done a lot of coastal research out there and it's amazing too you'll run into people like this guy I met was telling me about this place called devil's Canyon and he had ran into a Sasquatch when he was stopped on the side of the road and it was yelling at him from down in the Canyon and it was staring up at him and he just freaked out. And the guy actually, uh, was telling me the story about that, but it's like, it seems like anywhere you go when somebody finds out you're in the Sasquatch, everybody has somebody that's seen one or, or has, has had an incident.
0: Oh yeah, so it's like the best kept secret in in North America. It's like you scratch the surface, and everybody's either got a story or knows somebody with one.
1: Yeah, and, and I have I have a uh, a van that that said Sasquatch Mystery Center on the side and had our email address. And I would get emails from people all the time when I'm traveling up and down like I five, and they would uh, be taking pictures of it. And next thing you know, somebody would email me a story about this. So it, it was a good way to get a lot of uh, evidence from people that had sightings. And we put pamphlets out before different places where people have seen them. There's been people out by uh, or the Oregon Caves, which we have here in Southern Oregon, where uh, a lady had saw a Sasquatch running across the road with a deer underneath its, its arm, and it crossed the road in front of her.
2: Was it alive, did she mention, or dead?
1: Apparently, it snatched this deer. I don't know if the deer was alive or dead or not, but about maybe... A mile or two from that area, there are some residents that live back up in this remote area, and they have told us about these deer that were getting pushed into a really tight circle, and they were trying to figure out why the deer were coming into this group, and next thing you know, they saw this large bipedal creature reach in, grab a deer, book it out the other side.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
2: If 2020 was anything for you like it was for me, it would suck. I mean, I lost so much income just scratching to get by, and I discovered Mint Mobile. For just 15 bucks a month, you get unlimited text, talk, and data. It's insane. You just need a wireless hookup, and you're good to go. For 15 bucks a month, that's just an insanely good deal. You got to be insane not to do it. For people looking for extra
0: savings this year, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a
2: month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and
0: text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G
2: network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. It's a no-brainer.
0: To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash bigfoot. That's mintmobile.com slash bigfoot. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash Bigfoot. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices.
2: Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso en Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. I used to fish out of, well, on a boat out of uh, Brookings. And I was on the Checo River a lot for a couple of years. And I would hear almost nothing. Like I talked to, I'd, I knew a lot of the loggers and sporties, you know, that were fishing the river and stuff. And I I would hear almost nothing. And a guy fished with his... Grandma was the oldest member of the tribe. I can't remember the name of the tribe. That's way up the Chetco, but she had stories about uh, Sasquatch. But she said she hadn't heard any from her people in 20 years or something up there. That was in the mid 90s.
1: I haven't been to the Chetco. I haven't heard. Actually, I haven't heard of anything in the Chetco area. But it wouldn't surprise me that there's something up there because the Chetco River is a pretty good sized river. It's a good watershed, and that area isn't actually too far from where we live here. Just over the mountain range, the, the Cascade Range, there. We're, as the crow flies, we're probably only maybe 50, 60 miles from the ocean.
0: Most of your stuff has been in the Illinois uh, Valley, right? Would that be correct? Yeah, by, right by the, the Oregon Caves
1: area. There's a lot of territory in there, there's a lot of resources. Uh, back in 2000, 2003, we were on an expedition. And what, the interesting thing about this expedition, is we had a couple uh police officers that were with us. It was on a, a Friday night. They came out and the moon was about three quarters full that night. And we we're in this area that this road had came down and kind of come back up. And we were standing towards the upper part, but we we're still about maybe I don't know, 50, 60 yards from the flat spot. And we had a couple females with us. And a young boy, he's like 17 or 18 years old, and he had a flashlight on him. And I told him, I said, just keep the flashlight off if, if you know, we run into something. Because we kept hearing stuff in the trees. Next thing you know, this large male Sasquatch stepped out on the road in front of us. It was probably, I'd say, probably about eight and a half foot tall. And you can tell it was a male because they had uh, the genitals. It was massive, really wide shoulders, kind of, it's hard to tell exactly what the colors. you know, the Kind of a reddish brown, I would say. It was, it was right, when, right when the moon was coming up. And the only reason why I was able to know what the color was is because when the kid saw the Sasquatch with the fly, he turned the flashlight on. When he flicked the flashlight, it booked it. And you got a quick shot of the color. It, turned, it, it must have taken three steps and it was 30 feet up the hillside. It was just that quick.
2: Where was that at?
1: Up by the Orton Caves.
2: Okay. That place goes off.
1: Oh, it's we've had so much activity in this one particular area for years until the Biscuit Fire, but this, it was really interesting because there was no sounds that night. You didn't hear anything at night like you normally would or crickets or anything like that. But what was interesting is the next day, the next morning, we went back up to check that area out, and it reeked so bad. The smell was... I don't even know how to explain it.
0: What's your best guess? Like, what words did the uh, the smell remind you of a very putrid almost like a
1: decomposition of a body uh everybody smelled a dead deer on the side of the road or something it was kind of that that kind of smell i'm not sure if it's a pheromone thing but we did find two sets of tracks heading up that ridge line the next day and we had uh, the, one of the police officers that came back out with us and he went up and checked that area out Up in that area, too, our wildlife biologist, uh, the late William York, he actually had found some bedding areas up there where you could see where there was four Sasquatches there. There He figured out we had a male, a female, and two children, or adolescents, in that region. And this region was first found by a guy that was hunting up there, and he had shot a deer And when he shot the deer, he drug it back to his vehicle, and up on the hillside was a Sasquatch, and it had a log in his hand. He was beating it on the ground and thrashing it, and he wanted him out of there. So the guy didn't even get the deer. He threw it in the trunk of his car, and he drove off. And as he's driving off, he saw another one that was further up on the the ridgeline, up ahead of the male. So apparently, he was protecting his family unit up in that region.
0: Or protecting his deer.
1: It's really interesting, all the animals, the lot of, a lot of the animals that are up there. There's deer, there's a, a spring up there. I just went up there about a week ago, and there was a lot of bear track, and there was a lot of cougar and stuff. Matter of fact, in that same spot, on the very bottom of that ridge there, this was uh, probably a year or two later, a couple of our uh, researchers that were up there and had spotted this Sasquatch, but it was like a small one. And it was limping. We call it limpy. That The foot is actually looked like it's been broken and it's cocked at an angle right where that mid tarsal break would be. And it has this patch of skin that grew over it. And the interesting thing is, is like uh, our wildlife biologist, he, he had noticed that every time we had seen those tracks, there was cougar tracks at the same time. And he suggested that possibly there was a symbiotic relationship with that cougar and that sasquatch maybe the cat would help them hunt or something but i don't know i i know that we have some casts we've taken of that of the, the limpy track and i was doing some work one time for a veterinarian's office and i brought one of those in there and i showed it to her and she's like where did you get that primate track so she brought in all the other veterinarians and they looked at it and she goes that foot's been broken and it's healed but it hasn't been set
0: Yeah, but just another possibility is that if if that animal is limping or has any trouble with that foot, that cat might be uh, following that Sasquatch, uh, hoping for an easy meal at some point.
2: That's what I was thinking, possibly.
0: Yeah, because they always go for the wounded ones first, right? Whether it's deer or elk or anything else. But yeah, just a possibility.
1: Well, you would think that, but there's been two or three different times where we saw those tracks and at the same time there was those cougar tracks with it. I mean, I, I can't come to a conclusion of it I never got to see the creature. I only saw the tracks of it. And so, uh, the other people that saw it, they were just like, Whoa, if you know, it, it, it was real quick and then it darted off into the trees. But I don't know if, if, if it's possible for a cougar to have a symbiotic relationship with a Sasquatch or not. But I mean, we have relationships with our cats and dogs, but in the wild,
0: I don't, I wouldn't know. So far, you've told us about two observations that you personally had of Sasquatches. Um, is, is that it? Do you have more? Like, is that it? Like, is that all you got? I mean, don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, but have you seen them more than twice? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> here's,
1: here's the interesting thing. I've had a lot of interactions where, like, we'll, we'll be sitting around our campfire at our base camp, and we'll have pebbles thrown at us. Uh, we used to have a very aggressive bait pile program where we would take food up there. We would take like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, potted meats like Vienna sausages. And what we did is we'd rake out an area, and we would put the food in there. And at first, they would come in and just grab the stuff. So we would have some foot tracks. And then later on, we found sticks where they were using the sticks because they would actually be waiting for us to bring the food up there. We would go up there at least twice a week and bring food up there. But what was interesting is then they started throwing stuff off the side of the hill. And we're talking that area that's about 3,800 feet. It's on a dead end road and there's no way anybody could be up in that area. So they started, they would whistle. You would hear these little whistles in the woods as they are bringing the food up in there, but they would never
0: let us see them. But you've put eyes on one at least twice. And now it sounds like when you were young and then that other one with the cops, Right.
1: Yes. Physically, I I have seen two. Two. Okay. And that's in uh, almost 30 years apart. So,
2: As I said, you've had a lot of audio encounters, though, correct?
1: Yeah, we've had a lot of audio stuff. Uh, We've had uh, some weird... uh, Well, uh, let me go back to this. We have another area, and this, this other area that we have here is really close to Grants Pass, and we were on the end of a road. One of our researchers was back on down the road away at our camp he was coming out to meet us and one of our other researchers says, hey, take a look at this down the hill. And you could see something peeking out from behind a tree, like playing peekaboo And in the darkness you can kind of see the eyes and it would blink and it would pull its head back. And this thing was pretty good size because it was down on a slope and it was pretty tall. But for a full sighting I I you know it's I don't know what it was. But it was, it was weird how it would like peek out from behind the tree and then kind of pull its head back.
0: Now, uh, Ray, uh, you, the, the one you saw with the police officers, the big male, and you said that there were some footprints in the ground um, going up the hill afterwards. Two questions. Number one, did you cast any of those? And number two, based on what you saw or maybe the cast, depending if you have one, do you have other um, specimens? Do you have other casts from that same individual in your data?
1: I have a cast from one that came into our camp in the middle of the night. The interesting thing about these, these Sasquatch in the area that we've been working in is they're very curious. They came into our camp in the middle of the night. They like to run their fingers along the tent. I actually have an incident where these three guys were sleeping in, a, in one of our base camp. We had, we, we would do like these satellite camps where some of us are here. Some of us are a quarter mile down the road. And this one particular night, it was a summer's night. And this, creature came and there was no rain fly on the top of the tent because it was summer and one of the guys that was in the tent he was laying there trying to go to sleep and he said that he looked up and something was peeking in over the top of the tent at him and at the same time it ran its finger across the tent and rubbed him in the back of his head and he jumped to the fetal position he was so scared that we got on the radio he got on the radio with us and we had to drag him out of there I mean he was freaked out So we've gotten some foot casts from around our our base camp area. I've got one, I think it's about 17 inches long, where it stepped right into this soft, muddy area. And there's been a lot of times where these things will just track right through where we were. And the interesting thing is, too, is they like to steal stuff. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced anything like that, but I didn't even know some of this stuff was missing until years later. I had a pair of vice grips with a one penny nail that I used to stake in this, the tents. And it just was gone because, you know, you leave stuff laying out in your campsite at night. And then years later, I found it in the middle of the road. And that's the second time that happened because at one time I'd found this giant mug. We just drove it up to the end of this to the end of this road and we we're waiting on a couple other researchers to show up. And I decided, let's go back to this main area and check, check something out. And we turned around came back down on this road. And here's this mug set right in the middle of the road. We just like 10 minutes before drove right up there.
0: And it was your mug from a previous trip?
1: Yes. Yep, absolutely. Just like with the vice grips. And, and what's interesting too, we'll find these, we would find these little clumps of mushrooms that were laid out in the middle of the road so it's like they would leave something. And so we try to leave something back for them. And I don't know, have you guys ever experienced anything like that?
0: Yeah, I found plants and stuff left in the road where one was seen, like uh, the day before, like that kind of stuff. But I've never, to my knowledge, I've never had anything stolen from my own camp or anything like that. But I know other people who have. I even know one story of a, a group of guys that were down in the Roaring River Wilderness, which is a hell of a hike almost straight down. One of the guys lost, I think, his firearm or something when he was down there, like, cause down there you got to climb over deadfalls and you, there's not a lot of ground to walk on. You're actually walking on top of logs that have fallen on one another. Um, and if I remember the story, right, the guy, some like lost his firearm, which is a huge loss. Um, uh, but they were down there again, um, a period of time later. And I, I wish I could tell you how long, but I don't want to get it wrong. And they found the gun on top of a log in a very obvious place where they had been before. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Do you find that having a large number of people out there like he did before uh, changes the results of the expeditions at all?
1: The interesting thing is that, you know, at first when, when we used to have the Southern Oregon Bigfoot Society, we would have like 30 people come out there and we would just comb the woods. And it's a good way to find a lot of track evidence and bedding areas and such. But I think the fact that if it's more of an intimate setting where it's just a couple people, you're probably going to be more likely to encounter something. But then again, it's hard to say. Well, like I said, when we had the bait pile thing going, they were used to us bringing food out and stuff, and they were really interested in us. But it seemed like the more they learned about us, the, uh, the more further away they would stay, it seems like. And then we had the Biscuit Fire here, which burned like 400,000 acres in Southern Oregon. And it seems like right after that, these things moved out of that area.
0: And they didn't come back, huh?
1: Not that I know of. I mean, we, the area's really grown up now. It's funny, when you, when you work in an area for over 20 years, you can really see a difference in like the, the trees and the bushes and all the different, the road structure and how stuff is. And unfortunately, they just went up and logged part of this area in there. It's, it's unfortunate because, you know, that's going to push them out. But at the same time, the thing with logging is, as you know, with Sasquatch history, that uh, they're very inquisitive about logging industry and stuff. So they tend to walk around in the mud. You can get a lot of uh, latent footprints that way. So I'm, I'm always up to check it out regardless just to see if there's any track
0: evidence. So a moment ago, you referenced your, uh, your baiting thing where you're going up and like leaving food for them on a regular basis. Um, I have a couple questions about that because I've, I've been very successful in that so far. Uh, my first question is how long did it take or did it happen immediately for the Sasquatches to start taking your food?
1: They actually started taking the food right away. Like I said, at first, what we did is we, we, we had an area that was about maybe 15, 20 feet in a circle and we would come up there and rake the areas out, make sure there was nothing there. That way you could get some track evidence. And then um, they would come in and grab some of the food and just go. And there would be some foot tracks. So we'd cast some foot tracks. And then they would quit leaving foot tracks there. Now they wouldn't take food if there was a camera there. It was really interesting. But they would start using sticks and flicking the food out of the bait pile so they wouldn't go in there and leave anything. And actually at one point we were, uh, we did a thing with the travel channel about, um, this, this, you know, our area and, uh, we put a bait pile. We just used tons of water to really mud this up and we put a bait pile out there and it was weird because there was this weird impression there in the bait pile and everybody kind of looked at it and they're like, I don't know what that is. And, and, uh, I thought, you know, I don't care what it is. I'm going to cast it, and I casted it. And when I turned it around, it was a handprint. Because everybody's looking for footprints, but you got to think of other body parts, like you know, the, like um, the buttocks or, or elbows or anything. You're just like uh, with that body cast that they, that they got. But yeah, this handprint is pretty amazing, and it's huge compared to my hand. And I had I not cast that. Would have never had that. I think I actually, I think I actually showed that to you, Cliff, when
0: we were here. Yeah. I remember the knuckle print really well. Um, and I'd have to go back and check my photographs to see if there was an open hand or not. I don't remember that one, but.
1: Well, it is with the knuckles. The hand was out with the thumb to the side, but it, it was, it left, it, it, it tried, to, it tried to not put its hand in there, but it was just wet enough to where when it compressed it down to reach in there, um, it would, uh, it left, left the print there. So yeah, it's when it comes to casting stuff, if when in doubt cast it out, you know, cast it and see what happens Oh, you're 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 only out maybe a dollar worth of plaster the most but you never know what you're going to get
0: well now my follow-up question about the bait piles and whatnot is um what i over the you did this over a long period of time so what did you learn about your particular Sasquatch's preferences for foods like what did they take what did they not take um you know that kind of thing
1: Okay, so basically what we found out that they liked was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We'd just get like cheap white bread, peanut butter and jelly. We'd leave those out. Uh, canned Vienna sausages. We'd put out some bananas. They would eat those too, but they, did not like, they didn't really touch apples. They didn't really care for apples much. I wanted to tell you, uh, I, I, we're, I, you guys know about them breaking trees over at an angle? We, had, we hadn't been up in that area in a while, and um, we had this film crew from Canada come out, and they were going to film this uh, mystery hunters show out of Canada. And, man, they got up there. And I was like one of the first ones up there, and there were so many tracks up there. It was incredible. This water source where this water comes down off the hill, about 12 to 14 feet high, all the trees at this water source were broke off at an angle towards the road. And I don't know how that could have happened because there was no snow load up there that would cause that to be broken in that area. So I'm not sure if that was some kind of marker or something or not. But what the interesting thing is there was a boulder that was picked up and set in the middle of the road because it had moss on top of it. If a boulder had rolled off the hill, the moss would fly off of it. And actually in in this little Mystery Hunters thing, you can actually see where we actually have the boulder and we show it. And I I got a copy of the DVDs of that I should share with you guys. But the interesting thing is later on, I found a raccoon that was laid on that rock and its belly had been laid open like almost precision and the guts were ate out of it. There was nothing else touched on it. And it was laid out like it was ready for surgery. If you guys came across anything like that,
0: I have not, but it makes me wonder about the quality of raccoon meat. Like how bad could the meat be if like the best parts are the guts?
1: Well, they say that the guts are actually the best part to eat on the animals anyway, because it has the most protein and the nutrients, you know, like the liver and the heart and all that stuff. But it was funny that all the entrails, and there was another spot. uh, I was up by Lake of the Woods and I found another raccoon. It was in a similar fashion. It looked like it, something had swung it and Bash its head against a rock, and then it was laid open, and the guts were ate out of it. But there was no meat ate off of it, which is just strange. I've seen
0: that twice, two different areas. That is peculiar. I, I, I have heard, and I believe this, you know, um, I have heard that when, you can tell when the Sasquatches are around because raccoons and possums and everything like that just disappear. Uh, I heard that from a woman up in Washington that um, has them pop by the property every once in a while. Not all, not all the time, you know, like every couple of years she notices, oh my God, all there's. why are there no more raccoons? Where's that raccoon family? Where are the skunks? And then, you know, then there's usually some indication that the Sasquatches are back in the area for a little while. So it kind of jibes well with that uh, data.
1: Well, I want to tell you about another area here in Southern Oregon that one of our uh, researchers took me up to. And... Originally, this gentleman had saw a female with a child and, uh, in, this, in this area about 15 years ago. And then uh, a few years back, he, uh, he told me, he says, hey, I found this track in this water hole here. And uh, I went up to check it out, and we made some plaster casts of it. And it's probably the best foot cast I've ever seen. The articulation of the heel... Mid tarsal break, you can see where the toe splayed in as it reached in the water to get to get some water and how the foot turned as it went out. I think I've showed you that cast before Cliff when you're when you were over. Probably, yeah. It's about it's about I think fifteen or sixteen inches long and it's about five and five and a half, six inches wide. But I did email that some pictures of that to Jeff Meldrum several years ago and he explained to me how that foot went in there and how that turned and uh, it's really interesting but i go back in that area occasionally it's a it's a watershed and then uh, i'm always looking to see it's a weird area too because there's never any never any noise up there no birds nothing it's
0: stone cold quiet
1: and it's just eerie
0: so you did a lot of research, um, a long time ago, the area burnout with the biscuit fire. Have you been able to locate maybe through footprints or other evidence where those Sasquatches from that previous area have gone?
1: I, I have no idea where they've gone. Um, there used to be a guy that was, um, uh, he man the tower during the summertime. There was a, there's a fire tower lookout and, uh, he used to hear them yelling at each other from one side of the mountain to the other. And he, he had an Akita, an Akita, which is like the dogs they use to hunt bears. And this dog would cower with these things. And he could hear them. Like I said, this was like, I used to call it the Sasquatch highway. There was so much activity in this area. And as soon as that fire hit, it just dried up. And I have no idea where they went. Maybe they went, they pushed further back in the biscuit fire. Never did burn out this area. But it, it it was close. It, it was probably within a couple miles of there. So I don't know if it changed the dynamics of things there when when the fire hit. But I mean, it was so smoky and so thick. You know, the fires getting here in Oregon.
0: All too well. Yeah.
1: The one the one good thing, though, COVID doesn't stop you from going and doing Bigfoot research. It's actually accentuated because you got more time to do it now.
2: <laughs> That's true.
0: Always looking at the bright side. Thanks,
2: Ray. And there's more people out there to report stuff, too, because there's a lot more people camping. Exactly. Ray, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad I finally got to talk to you. I've heard your name for so many years, and I pass through there all the time. i got to stop in and check out your, uh, your collection of casts. Yeah, you have to stop by and hit me up. Cool, I will for sure.
0: Well, Ray, thanks so much for coming on with us. Um, I'm glad we finally managed to get our schedule um, you know, together to get you on. been trying to get you on here for months, actually. Um, but hey, uh, down in Southern Oregon, in Northern California, you're one of my main contacts down there. So if anybody else has some stories or some recent evidence and they want to share it with you, how can they get a hold of you?
1: They can contact me at SasquatchMystery at Yahoo.com, or they can check us out on Facebook under SMCSOBS, which stands for Sasquatch Mystery Center and Southern Oregon Bigfoot Society.
0: And those are Facebook pages. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. It's all one Facebook page. It's
0: just, Oh, okay. You can look under, if you just type in Sasquatch History Center, it'll pop right up. All right. Well, very good, man. Thank you so much, Ray, for coming on. And if, Hey, if you're up in my neck of the woods, you let me know and I'll give you the VIP treatment at the museum. And uh, maybe even take you out and show you some of the spots I got up here.
1: Uh, We're looking forward to that.
0: All right, Ray. Well, very good. Thank you so much, man. Thank you.
1: It was nice talking with you.
2: Okay, man. Have a good one later, Cliff. Keep it squatchy. Hello, I am Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a clinical psychologist and collector of Chicano Latinx art. For generations, we have known of the healing powers of art at an individual and community level. Please join us as we interview prominent artists, collectors, curators, and influencers in the world of Chicano Latinx art. We will explore historical, regional, and political influences that impact Chicano Latinx art today. Along with our partners at www.latinoarte.com, we are preserving the colorful and rich history of Chicano Latinx art for future generations, one interview at a time. Please join us at Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art, wherever you listen to podcasts.